Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Sports, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I am Dr. Jorge Red of Texas Tech University, the host of the channel. Today, we are talking with Wade Davies about his new books, Native Hoops, The Rise of American Indian Basketball, 1895 to 1970. Wade, welcome to the program. Hey, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Before before we get started discussing your, your wonderful book, which, by the way, was published by the University of Kansas Press in 2020, uh, please tell us a little bit about your background and about how you got interested in this particular topic. Sure. Um, so I was born and raised in Indiana and and did my undergraduate education at Indiana University. And uh, after, from there, I went on and Got my PhD in history from Arizona State, uh, specializing in American Indian history. After okay. that, I, I taught for a while at a two-year college that uh, in a town near the Navajo Nation. But but for the last twenty years, I've been teaching Native American studies at the University of Montana. I'm a professor here. Okay. I teach classes in American Indian history, but my uh, my favorite is the class that. I created here that I've been doing for about 15 years where I teach about the history and culture of native gaming and sporting traditions, which is a fun class because I also take students outside and we play many of these sports together, which is a great experience. That's part of, um, that's contributed to my passion for completing the book, but I Mm -hmm. actually became interested in it. I guess this would be a little over 20 years ago. So when I was working on my PhD dissertation, which was about 20th century healthcare on the Navajo Nation, I would I would go up there and I'd interview uh, Navajo Diné, they would say, doctors and nurses. And as an icebreaker, I would just comment on all the hoops that I saw everywhere on the Navajo Nation, mm-hmm. just outside every house, more more than I even remember seeing in Indiana where I grew up. And uh and we'd launch into conversations. And even though we were in these hospital environments and I was asking questions that were very heavy, that just talking about basketball, people lit up and we'd get into these great conversations. And that's when I first realized that that the sport really means a lot to Native peoples and is something really positive in their lives. And so I became interested in, in uh, the topic and I started looking for books and such about it. And there really wasn't a whole lot written about the subject, which I found odd. And so I became dedicated to researching the story, where this passion came from. And for the past 20 years or so, off and on, life's intervened many times in between. There's been a couple of other books on different topics that have kind of fallen in my lap in between. But but I finally, uh, thank goodness, saw it, saw it to completion. Thanks to uh, encouragement from the press, from the University of Kansas Press. Well, it's it's an ex, it's an excellent book, and and I think it's it's an excellent book, and I think that one of the the key things that that I found particularly interesting is the fact that it seems to me that so much more has been written about Native American participation in football. And, and to be able to see another sport that is really a key part of Native American life, I think, is a very valuable contribution to the field. Yeah, thank you. Football, and that, that is interesting, and that is true. There's more written about football, mostly because there's been so many historians that have focused on on Jim Thorpe and, right. and, and also on the history of athletics at Carlisle Indian School, which I'm sure we'll touch on throughout this discussion. But they were obviously famous for their football program. And so that's led to all these people writing about football, which, which is important, but it's of the major sports that native peoples 
are involved in today, I, I'd say it's the least significant to some degree. Less yeah. so than basketball, for sure. Less so than rodeo. Less though, so in many parts of Native America than baseball, even. But um, not that it's not an important story, but I, I too found that interesting or odd that that sport would be so focused on and basketball would be ignored by most historians. Okay, well let's let's get into into the uh, the, the the book itself, and and one of the the things that I found particularly interesting right off the bat in your introduction, you talk about how basketball is less about individual accomplishment and more about quote, competing for your family, your tribe, and natives everywhere. How is this sense of the game different from that of other ethnic or racial groups as far as Native Americans are concerned? I don't think it's wholly different. Obviously, any players from any ethnic or racial group anywhere in in the world, when they're competing, obviously, they take pride in competing for their communities and their families. So, so it's never my intent to say that this is a totally unique experience, but it's it's definitely the case that for native players and teams, I think that's a heightened heightened commitment to this idea of community. And in many cases, there is less of an emphasis on individual glory for individual players. Mm-hmm. Not that it never happens, but I think this it, it's not something that's specific to basketball, but it's basketball and the way native peoples interact with that sport reflecting just the more general emphasis that as diverse as they are many native communities have always placed on communal values and family values being more important than individual accomplishments so i think it's it's a reflection of thousands of years of culture more so than it is part of just the basketball story Okay. Okay. And, and, you know, sort of picking up on, on that idea, you also noted that basketball was in part a game that threatened native culture. Um, how did natives, native Americans go about choosing hoops as the game to quote, make their own. And, and, and again, obviously it seems to me, this is almost like a, a CLR James type of, uh, situation where the native people are going to do something with a game that is not originally their own, but they make it their own. Tell us a little bit about that. Sure. So in terms of, first off, basketball threatening their culture, what I would say there is, I don't think from the start, native peoples didn't perceive it that way. It's that because the sport was introduced for the most part, through the boarding schools in the in the very late 19th century and early 20th century, the federal government boarding schools that they ran for native native youths, um, these schools obviously had as a major intent to assimilate native peoples, to wipe out native cultural identities, and to some extent, along with that, native sovereignty. And basketball was plied by many of the school officials, the superintendents, along with other sports, football, baseball, as as a way to introduce not only American culture to Native peoples in, in American or non-Native American sports, but also to teach good behavior as the schools defined it, to promote discipline as the schools defined it. And, and, and in that sense, it was a threat because it was part of this larger scheme that was certainly a threat, the boarding schools. But for Native peoples themselves, they, from the beginning, didn't really perceive it that way. They saw in basketball, although they heard all this language about, quote unquote, proper behavior and proper values and so on. Although they heard that, they they could clearly see that this sport and other sports had meaning to them as a way to build community between them and other native students as they were going through difficult times. But they also saw that these team sports that were being introduced by outsiders paralleled a lot of their indigenous sports like lacrosse, for example, or shinny or some of the other sports that native peoples played and that they emphasized a lot of the same skills, a lot of the, they had the same kind of communal dynamic between players and and also the schools, as I talk about in the book, were, were never very, they weren't well-funded and their athletic programs, 
for the most part, were oftentimes managed by native coaches and the school superintendents didn't didn't micromanage most of them. Football is somewhat of an exception at some of the big schools. And so although it was meant to pose a threat to their culture, kind of the key to the story is that native peoples never saw it that way or they understood that they could they could mitigate that threat very easily and do what they want with it. Right. Um, Another thing I want to add here really quickly is, and I talk about this somewhat is although it was clearly a new sport when it was introduced to natives, they never, when they met it, uh, I mean, encountered it in Carlisle boarding school in 1895 in Pennsylvania, they'd never heard of a sport called basketball. Nobody had um, before that really. And they'd never seen a sport played by those exact rules. But since that time, many Native communities have have really believed that this is an Indigenous sport in some sense, that it has some Indigenous roots. And I talk mm-hmm. about that in the book, that a lot of times people equate it to a game played in Mesoamerica, that I guess we would just call the Mesoamerican ball game, that, that did involve a hoop. But... In my research, I found that that James Naismith, who who invented the sport of basketball and wrote the original rules, likely didn't know anything about that sport. But he did admittedly draw from lacrosse for part of his inspiration. So there is an indigenous root through lacrosse mm-hmm. in basketball. In other words, to sum this up, I would say Native peoples then and now don't normally regard this as an alien sport that was either forced on them and nor do they regard it as a, as a white man's sport to begin with. Interestingly enough. Okay. Now it's not just the sport itself, but it is also the way that they, that the native Americans play the game. Uh, One of the things that I found particularly fascinating because, you know, I grew up, uh, watching, you know, the the era of of the big man in uh, in the NBA and in and in and in college basketball, and now things have sort of moved out to the perimeter, and and you have a, a, a much faster game. And and one of the points that you make in in the book is that the the native version of the game is much more up tempo than how it was played by whites at at, at especially early on. Why was this so? And how did the natives version of the game compare to, say, how it was played by African-Americans or or other groups? Yeah. So probably, although there's still a pronounced difference today when when you watch native high school teams, public school teams play compared to most of their opponents, but the the contrast was probably more pronounced early in the 20th century and through mid-century. Century. So initially, some outside observers, reporters referred to what they were seeing native peoples do as, as just Indian basketball. In more recent times, people use the term res ball, which are which are related. And definitely the central element of that is it being up tempo. So foot speed, especially fast breaking styles of play, was has almost always been part of of the native game. Of course, not all native teams played the same way, but there is this distinct style. Beyond the foot speed, though, that there was this perimeter shooting, long distance shooting, which goes back for native teams to the earlier part of the 20th century. There is the fact that early on they were noted for being more agile, being expert dribblers for doing things with the ball that would now be commonplace, but in the 1920s seemed pretty extraordinary. Mm-hmm. And um, and definitely the teamwork. Early on through the 20th century, Native teams were often noted for, for how quickly they passed the ball, how well they worked with, with each other as a unit without doing a lot of talking on the court. That's something that's still true in a lot of cases. Mm-hmm. So, um, so where that came from and how that compares to other styles. So the first part of that question first, where it came from. So... It's impossible to say for sure, but but from everything I've seen and noting that this this style appeared with native teams in boarding schools all over the country very 
within a very short window of time, says to me that it, it wasn't so much taught by one person or originated by one team. It's something that kind of in part grew organically out of the things that many Native communities have in common. And one of those things is the running tradition that, right. that runners, distance runners, more so than sprinters, but also sprinters to some extent have have always been emphasized in many native communities on the plains and the Southwest and other parts of the continent as well. I mean, to this day, a lot of kids, especially in the Southwest, Navajo kids or Hopi kids or so on will still wake up in the morning and run every morning as, as part of their traditional life is expressing part of their, um, as their identity and their family identities. So running for necessity, running as tradition, running as culture was always part of Native life. And so it was somewhat natural that these teams in the early 1900s would express that tradition through this sport. They did through football as well, mm-hmm. by the way. Um, so that's part of it. Also that that they had this long tradition of team sports that demanded speed and agility like lacrosse. And although some of those traditions were threatened and, and fading by the early 20th century, there were many of the Native students that were still connected into that life and would have taught some of those skills to their teammates. So part of it is is those community traditions. And, and also with teamwork, part of that relates to that, that idea of community values, communal values. But the other half of it is... I think the boarding schools themselves, which were in many ways threatening, obviously, to Native cultures, to to the health and well-being of their students. They're remembered traumatically by many Native communities to this day. But when it came to sports, that was an area where Native peoples, I argue, had more, more freedom than they found in other aspects of school life. And as part of that freedom, they... They spent a lot of time playing basketball and other sports, even when they weren't being observed or compelled to by school staff. And they spent so much time together in this boarded environment and clung so um, tightly to some of these sports as a positive aspect of their lives that, that they honed these traditions they had and improved upon them and became faster, became more skilled at playing. And so they could play in a way that a lot of their non-native opponents couldn't match and develop this style. So over time, now, I don't argue that they exclusively did so. There's So other studies people have written about African-American teams in Chicago, Asian-American playground teams in San Francisco, uh, Ignacio Garcia's book about Mexican-American teams and and in Texas, they find a lot of similar things early on with how these other non, non-white, non-Jewish teams played in terms of the up-tempo game and the more pronounced agility in playing. So it's not a unique experience with Native peoples, although I think their style in certain ways is unique. But why there'd be these similarities I, is not something I've I've researched really deeply, but I have a few ideas. Uh, One possibility is that many of those authors talk about those groups also feeling a a sense of empowerment through playing basketball um, in societies where they were facing prejudice and so on, that being able to play this sport on an even playing ground and being able to score victories gave them a sense of empowerment and exuberance. And I wonder if that that contributes to playing style in an emotional, mental sense. But also, uh, one thing I think might be involved is officiating. And Native teams to this day, but especially in the 20th century, commonly complained about white officials who were biased against them and would blow the whistle very freely uh, against them, but wouldn't call fouls on white teams and so I wonder if also some of this shooting from the outside and agility is with many of these groups a way to avoid that kind of contact that would lead to biased officiating against them. That's just a theory. I don't. Well, let me, let me ask you, let me, let me ask you this then, because if they're playing, if these native teams are playing this style of game, 
And when they go outside, and I know that you have a specific chapter where, where you talk about these teams going out and playing outside of these, uh, these boarding schools and sometimes playing against, you know, white teams. How did these other teams, especially white teams, sort of react to that style of basketball that was not particularly the accepted way of playing the game? At certainly early in the 20th century. Well, so white spectators um, would react by flocking to see these games because it was an exciting style to, to witness. But white teams that would match up against these teams, it's it's not always easy to, to tease that information out of the sources. I studied, for instance, foul rates and so on and found that, that there wasn't anything glaring there. But but one thing is some white teams clearly responded with force. Um, and by that, I mean that to try to knock the native players off their game through through fouling them and hoping to get away with those fouls seemed to have been a, a common tactic, which doesn't necessarily show up in the statistics because a lot of times those fouls, I think, weren't called. Mm-hmm. So that was one response. Another uh, another response was that although the native style was often very effective and was exhilarating to watch, white teams would tend to try to beat them with their more methodical game. And and if if the native teams they were playing against weren't particularly strong shooters, for instance, then then that more methodical game often prevailed. So, so there were, were ways short of dirty play to, to defeat that system. But um, then, then also I find a lot of native teams from the boarding schools complaining a lot about whether they were, whether this was a reality or they just perceived it, complaining about the, the floors being overwaxed when they play on away floors and so on. So I also wonder if to some degree people tried to blunt their speed advantage other ways. Yeah. But um there's also admiration that the story, I mean, there's obviously many stories of conflict and racial conflict through basketball that natives experience, but there are also stories of, of true admiration. And, and I do think some of the teams that commonly play native teams had a, they had a generally mostly positive relationship and probably admired the style. And in some cases, some of these teams actually tried to mimic it, uh, usually unsuccessfully. So it was a mixed mixed bag in their response. Okay. okay. Now, in, in Chapter 2, you talk about how Haskell becomes the cradle of Native American basketball. Why and how did this happen in, 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 in that particular institution? Sure. So in part, me using that term cradle of basketball with Haskell is also kind of playing off the fact that Haskell was in Lawrence, Kansas, is still right. in Lawrence, Kansas neighboring to University of Kansas, the Jayhawks. And often people refer to to Kansas, or they refer to themselves at least, as the cradle of basketball in general, because Coach Fogg Fog Allen, kind of often seen as the father of basketball coaching, coached there for a long time, of course, at the same time that James Naismith was working there as a faculty member. So the inventor of basketball was there for quite some time. But it's not just because that association is there, it's that Haskell truly was, I would argue, the cradle of native basketball because of all the boarding schools or Indian schools, as they called them, that the federal government ran. Carlisle is the most famous, most known to people, but it closed down in 1918. Haskell continued on well into the 20th century. It it still exists as a college today under very different administrative structure, but it was the for a long time it was the largest boarding school and it tended to have older students and they established a very strong men's basketball program at Haskell and so if you were a native student in most indian schools students were being taken there against their will sometimes literally dragged there or their parents being compelled to send students. And this is obviously a big part of the story of the boarding schools and the tragedy of them. Mm-hmm. But Haskell, for these older students, you had some of the elite athletes, athletes in Indian country would actually apply to go there. It was seen as a, as a premier program in basketball. 
And it was the best avenue you had as a native young man into your early 20s of gaining recognition and maybe having some chance to go to a four-year university after that and play, although that was uncommon, or some chance to get into to professional basketball in some form. So Haskell was the highest profile school in that sense. So it attracted the greatest native basketball players of the early 20th century. And Haskell also tended through its newspapers and through its students that would graduate and go to other schools or take staff positions at other Indian schools. Haskell also tended to have a great influence on athletics at all of the other Indian schools once Carlisle closed. And so it, the styles were refined there. The best teams were there and on, at least on the men's side of the game. And, and then it would, it has since broadcast basketball and these styles outward throughout Indian country. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Okay, okay. Let's let's switch gears for a second here, and let's talk about Native American women and how they took to the game. In Chapter 3, you discussed that particular topic. Why don't you give us just a quick synopsis of, of some of what you found as regards Native women and their ties to the sport. Sure. So in Native sporting traditions, sport team sports have always been important. And although certain men's sports might have been more higher profile in certain respects, lacrosse in much of North America or the Mesoamerican ball game in the Southwest, Central America, and so on, Women's sports like shinny and a sport called double ball and and a few others were always important in native communities. And not only did women play them without any any stigma attached to that, but they often were just as vigorous. There weren't any concerns um, about the safety of women as you would see expressed in Victorian America. Mm-hmm. There wasn't any concern that it was somehow women it women invading a masculine sphere like there would be in American culture in the late 19th, early 20th century. So women freely played. And when they got to the Indian schools, to the boarding schools, though, they confronted this idea that that team sports were were masculine and that they could even endanger a woman's safety, could endanger her ability, her reproductive ability to have children, that that it was somehow unseemly or unfeminine for them to play sports. And so many sports in the Indian schools were, were closed to them. They, they couldn't play football, obviously. Baseball, women could play in some schools, but, but usually only as an intramural. Um, track to a limited extent. And then tennis to a lim- limited extent, although it never really caught on. Basketball was the exception. So basketball, because... Women like Senda Berenson and others had written women's rules early on and promoted it in these modified forms as a as a feminine game early on. The superintendents that ran many of these schools did accept basketball as a varsity sport for for girls and young women. Mm-hmm. And so it was the one sport they had where they could express their athleticism. The boys and young men had football, baseball, basketball, other sports as well. Thorpe, for instance, played all of them. But the women only had this one. And so to get that joy of of competition, to get the privileges that many athletes enjoyed in these schools, um, in contrast to their classmates, this was their sport. And Combined with that was the fact that early on in the early 20th centuries, there were just some exemplary native women's teams. The the most famous of all being the team that played for Fort Shaw in Montana. Right. That, that, that went on to play at the World's Fair in St. Louis in 1904 and won a championship there. So young native girls in these schools and young native women in these schools also had these early role models. And 
And so for women, basketball in these schools was a, was a godsend more so than for the men early on for the boys and men early on. It was a great game, but it wasn't necessarily favored more than football or baseball. But the fact that you have half the school population that didn't have access to those meant that basketball had a reach like no other. Okay. Um, And and we've touched on this already, but I, I want maybe to flesh it out just a little bit more. Does your research, did your research demonstrate that these Native American players played more, quote, for their institutions or more for each other? Um, In in other words, was, was the fact that they had access to this sport that gave them certain, you know, provided them with certain privileges was that more important to them individually or was it the fact that our institution was out there winning against other Native American institutions and in many cases against white schools? I, so how I'd answer that is that, that there were some players in the Indian schools that looking back on their experiences – that the love they had for basketball and their competitive spirit that they expressed for basketball as they were a student reflected in part that they did have an emotional attachment and some pride in the institution. There were some students like that, like, like Buck Cheadle, a Chickasaw player who played for Chilaco talked about later on that he loved basketball and he loved Chilaco and what it had done for him. But that that's the minority I'd have to say mm-hmm. for, for most people in Indian country, for most native families to this day, they look back on the boarding schools as, as a traumatic experience. And, and there's very little, if anything, positive that they would say about these places as institutions. Yet many of those same people talk about playing sports for these schools in very positive ways. Well, not playing sports for those schools, but playing sports at those schools. They speak about in very positive ways. And so that leads me to, to, the, uh, to the conclusion that for the most part, they weren't playing for the institution. There, there were some examples like with the Haskell and Carlisle men during the early uh, 20th century when they were playing each other where there were institutional rivalries, Haskell versus Carlisle. And so the name of the school was was part of that glory. Although still, I don't know that that means they were playing for their institution. Really. They were playing for pride within an Indian country. I I think more so, but for the most part, for the most part, I think native teams and players were playing for each other as team members, as, as any teams would, they were playing for their fellow students who they were going through this difficult experience together and, and it's only by by being together that they got through this experience. And so basketball was a way to express that. Their pride in each other was a big part of it. Uh, and then and then thirdly, playing for themselves, but not in the sense of of glory. So not in a, in a way that necessarily conflicts with these kind of community ideals we've been talking about. Mm-hmm. But although there were some, I'm sure that 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 individual status mattered to them. But Many times they were playing kind of as, as, as you suggested here, they were playing for the privileges that came with that, that, that being a basketball player meant they, they could eat better, that they, the athletes were fed better in these schools when many, and they could travel, they could travel, they could, if, so if they, one reason you would play basketball and love playing basketball, not, not in spite of the fact that you dislike the schools, but because you dislike the schools is it would get you literally out of the school. So especially guys like Jim Thorpe, if you were playing all the varsity sports, they spent a good portion of their lives, their year outside of the schools, whereas non-athletes rarely were getting out. So also to, to, um, to escape discipline in many cases, although there were strict disciplinary codes for the athletes at, same kind of thing that you might argue with any school anywhere. There, there were strong suspicions that the athletes could get away with things that uh, other students couldn't. And at schools where corporal punishment was was common, where some of these schools actually had jail cells for students as a form of discipline, 
to be able to play basketball, get out of the school and to avoid some of that discipline was 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 huge. So so there were many reasons they were playing institutional pride from everything I w- I've seen was the least of those. OK, OK. Now, we've already talked a little bit about the institutions teams going and playing in the world outside. Um you also, a little bit later on in the book, in chapter nine, you, you talked about the, 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 the institutional teams going out and in, in, in playing the world outside in chapter five. A little later on in chapter nine, you talk about Native American barnstormers. Uh, my sense was that the experiences of these two types of teams were different. What can you tell us about how white audiences, for example, perceived the Native American barnstorming teams versus how they perceived the Native American institutional teams? Sure. So in a sense, yes, the barnstorming teams was a very different experience, but there's also they're also fundamentally linked to the boarding school teams. In this, and, and in the perceptions of the American public, they were as well. So, so first off, in that style of play that, that we've talked about, the, the barnstorming teams were primarily composed of students who had left the boarding schools, whether they had graduated or just otherwise left the boarding schools, that then take up sometimes on the amateur level, but oftentimes on the professional level, at least to some extent, they, they kept playing basketball after they left. And they kept playing that same style that they had developed in the boarding schools. And so fans, white spectators would come out to see either kind of team with similar enthusiasm because they, first off, they expected to see that same style. But, but something else that's in common is, is these teams were, were, there was heavy stereotyping and, and, and racially based hyping that, that newspapers would do to promote whether it was the boarding school teams or these barnstormers. And, um, and they'd use this frontier rhetoric, a lot of offensive cartoons and language presenting native peoples as in, as warriors and invading white communities and so on. And, and that was really played up probably more so with the barnstormers, but it was played up with boats. So white fans wanted to see either type of team both because they really, truly admired the way these native teams played and they continued that style into the barnstorming ranks, but also because the same style of advertising was used, the same kind of novelty uh, idea, the same kind of novelty um, advertising that was used often in advertising other non, non-white non teams as well. So um, in that sense, it's kind of similar. There's also the connection that that a lot of the guys that barnstormed when they left those schools were were expressing um, a spirit that they developed in the schools. So the school's superintendents tended to look down upon their players ever going pro, although they were mostly worried about baseball. And they looked down upon it because they saw professional sports as, as morally lesser than being a hard worker or being a farmer or things like that. And they mm-hmm. weighted their athletes. But ironically enough, these boarding school teams toured so often and were so successful at it that they were inadvertently training many of their students for this barnstorming life and this professional life. And the, and the joy that students experienced escaping the schools and living on the road, even though they'd, they'd face discrimination and they'd face troubles on the road too, but not like in the schools in many cases. And that continues over into the barnstorming lifestyle. So, so actually in many ways, I'd say they're actually linked experiences, but, but there's obviously differences with the barnstormers in the sense that native peoples, once they made it into the barnstorming ranks, ranks tended to have even more control over their lives than they would if they were playing for the Indian schools. Okay. Okay. Um, in chapter 10, you talk about the significance of championships for various communities. Now, I didn't know that you were 
from Indiana. Uh, but I mean, obviously the, the, that great movie Hoosiers and, and sort of the, the lore of the significance of bat championship basketball to small communities in the state of Indiana, very similar to, you know, the, the, the lore that goes with championship high school football, especially six man ball uh, here in, uh, in West Texas. You know, I, I find, I find that, uh, that idea of, of the value, the significance of championships, very, very interesting. How and why were championships significant and what were some of the differences between how, say, a Native American community perceives such triumphs from, say, how the majority population would view championships? Yeah. So so as you're saying, there is a similarity to some extent, obviously, in that many of these championship Native teams are coming from small towns on reservations or in or in small rural communities off reservation. And so part, part of it is similar. Part of it is that that pride and, and exhilaration that anybody's going to get when you have a, a small school that's going to take down larger schools. This was especially true as in Hoosiers before you had the class, um, the class divisions where, right. where some little schools could beat a big city school. But there is something different in with native teams. There's something heightened about it. And I'd say that's probably for two reasons. One, one is again, that, that emphasis on community, that emphasis on strong communal values and that, that, that heightened pride that native peoples take when other native peoples succeed at, at anything uh, noteworthy, but, but including at a, in athletics with a championship. So part of that is the same, the same exuberance they would have for supporting each other in any realm of life carries over to basketball. And so you maybe see a little bit even more enthusiasm, but, but the main reason probably is, is that idea of triumphing against within a society that in many ways has been against them. So in the midst of, of a history of assaults on their lands and cultures, ongoing threats to their sovereignty, the, the ongoing racial bigotry that people confront, to have this realm of life, this area of life where you can compete, in spite of maybe some biased officials here and there, you can nonetheless compete on an even playing ground, even playing field, and prevail, that means that much, much more. It's that much sweeter, I think. So I... I I think part of it's a common experience with other people, but there is a, a heightened joy that many Native communities would have. Okay, okay. I, I think really a, a good way to, to sort of summarize the book is what is the overall value and importance of basketball to, to Native Americans? I mean, there, there have been, <laughs> there have been uh, I know, uh, recent uh, books, recent uh, documentaries that sort of look at the, the significance of the sport to communities in, in a lot of different places. How in, how significant is it? How and why is it different from the value importance placed on the game by other groups? Yeah, so for one, one thing that's important to say is that I think without a doubt, except in, except in certain Western families and communities here and there where rodeo is very big in Indian country, there's no sport. There's no sport that comes even close to basketball in Native communities in terms of its, its, its significance, in terms of how many people follow, how many people play the sport. Uh, there are some parts of the South, Southeast and certain other Native communities where baseball is still a big deal. But but basketball is clearly it's it's a phenomenon. It's not just the most popular sport. It's one of those things that I think of along with powwow and other things. That's that's just a unifying force in Indian country. That's just a huge source of pride for for families, for tribes, and for Native peoples in general. And state tournaments, high school tournaments, and so on. It, it, that's obvious for anybody to see. Driving across any reservation, as I've mentioned before, and all the hoops you see of all variety out of every house, it's 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 huge. And 
more so than I think it is in almost any other community. That's it's rivaled in Indiana where I grew up, or of course for many groups and cities, it's rivaled. But so why that is is again going back to that legacy of the Indian schools and that this sport meant a lot to people in very troubled times. As I talk about in the book, even after the boarding schools, basketball continued to be something that native peoples had positive to carry with them through difficult times, economic difficulties on the reservations in warfare for the the very large percentage of native men that served in world war one and world war two Basketball was something, again, that provided some comfort behind the lines while they were doing that. During the the Depression, all the teams that sprung up through certain New Deal programs on reservations, again, basketball was something that, that, that had a deeper meaning beyond just being entertainment or being a way for individual athletes to uh, establish themselves. And also, that connection that people have, have continued to see between basketball and their indigenous sporting traditions mm-hmm. and, and and that sense that it belongs to them in uh, maybe more so even than some other sports that they might love like football. So there are some things about it that's I think unique to the to the native experience and, and a big part of that, the two big parts of that I would say are are the, the boarding school experience. A lot of these other groups that that love basketball, also, I'm drew strength from it in difficult times, but boarding schools is its own type of experience, and and that sense of that the sport has links to their ancestors and their traditional sports. I think that that adds an element in Indian country beyond what you see in other places. Okay, okay, I've got I've got two more two more questions that I wanted to ask you. Uh, and really the, the first one is, I mean, obviously we've only scratched the surface of, of what you have researched in this work. Is there any specific topic that you wanted to discuss that, that we've, we haven't covered? I, I don't think there's any topics that we haven't covered that are, that are, um, that I think we necessarily need to, but there are, there, there's a couple things I would say. One is in terms of, of what's most excited me about this project and another question of what I'm still most excited about doing moving forward. One of those is being able to tell the stories, um, especially with the barnstormers, but with many of these players and teams in the boarding schools as well, stories of these, these remarkable athletes and teams that, that nobody knows anything about. And mm-hmm. uh, even Thorpe, who everybody knows who Jim Thorpe is, and he's been, been written about as extensively as almost any athlete in American history. But the fact that he had a, this basketball team, this barnstorming team that he ran, that his own family didn't know about, that his biographers until recently didn't know about, mm-hmm. it, to be able to illuminate that part of his story, but more importantly, to be able to tell the story of people like Speck Black, uh, Blacksmith of the Sioux Travelers or Tony Wop, um, a great Sock and Fox and Potawatomi player, Clyde James, a Modoc player, Rose Hill, Lumbee. These players who were fantastic players and were recognized as such in their day and that nobody knows their story, to be able to write about them and share those stories with their families quite often who also shared those stories with me that that really meant more to me than I think anything else. Um, And moving forward, particularly those, those barnstormers, I just think there's so many stories that I want to tell about them that are, that I think are just fascinating that that whole era of barnstorming basketball with the exception of the Harlem Globetrotters is, is I think not told um, in much detail and it's so rich. And, and Wade, I, I think that, uh, I, I mean, I agree wholeheartedly with what you've just said. I mean, honestly, that is why we do what we do, you know, because we want to tell these stories and, and, and bring to light the contributions and the, the, the value to communities uh, of these different types of sports and of these different athletes that, uh, that maybe a lot of folks haven't, haven't heard of. 
So that's 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 definitely true. You know, I, I wanted to ask you one last question, and it's it's very topical. Uh, given your area of expertise, what uh, I, I can't let you go without bringing up the issue of the Washington Redskins uh, at, at, at and and sort of what's happening now with the process uh, that Daniel Snyder is going through with the team and the naming of the team. Sort of give me your reaction about the Redskins, the the Cleveland Indians. You know, I'm a graduate of the University of Utah. Uh, the, my, my alma mater used to be called the Redskins. And uh, for like the last 55, 60 years, they've been the, the running Utes. What is your reaction to this discussion that is taking place at the moment about Native American team names? Well, of course, in in Native communities, that discussion has been front and center for decades. And obviously, it's a it's a it's a great thing that maybe it's finally producing some results. And despite what other people will say about whether it's honoring them or so on, I, I do know that it's pretty widely, not universal, but pretty, pretty widely believed in, in, in native communities that, that these team names are offensive. Uh, I don't know if it's, if it's equal with all of them. I mean, obviously Redskins is the most egregious. So, um, Beyond that, I I don't know if I would speak, try to speak for everybody, but, but definitely that's, that's a positive change. What's happening recently. It's a long time in coming, of course. Yeah. Okay. Well, listen, wait, uh, but believe it or not, we've been talking for over 50 minutes. Um, We've taken up a lot of your time. I, I, I I love the book. I I highly recommend it. I hope a, a lot of folks will pick this up and, and look into this really unique aspect of the history of the sport of basketball uh, in the United States. Uh, I want to thank you for for taking the time to visit with me today, and I wish you uh, very good luck in uh, in your future endeavors. Hey, thank you so much for for having me. Uh, I really appreciated the time. I loved talking. I had no idea that that was fifty minutes that went by. So, thank you very much. Thank you.